This update to the Silicon Valley bank collapse just exposed an even bigger problem. Andrew Tate just took another desperate L. We've got a middle school strip search scandal over in Oklahoma. Lineker versus the BBC. Abortion is soon to be the equivalent of homicide in South Carolina. We're gonna talk about all that and so much more on your brand new revamped Philip DeFranco show. So buckle up, hit that like button, and let's just jump into it. Starting with, this was definitely one of the most requested stories from you beautiful British bastards who watch the show. And I get it, it's big news over there. It's also, it blends several stories together. What I'm talking about is this controversy around BBC sport host Gary Lineker. And all that seems to stem from the UK's controversial new bill that cracks down on illegal migration, which we actually covered last week. Right, it would deport almost all people who arrive in the country on small boats, which often carry asylum seekers who were led by human traffickers. But the country's home secretary is saying in a video. This bill will mean that if you come here illegally, you will not be able to stay. You will be detained and removed to your home country if safe, or a safe third country like Rwanda. But the United Nations has said that this bill is a clear breach of international law, and the UN was far from the only critic. Gary Lineker, the host of the BBC sports show Match of the Day, responded to that video of the Home Secretary by saying, Good heavens, this is beyond awful. We take far fewer refugees than other major European countries. This is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. And those posts landed him in some hot water. So much so, Lineker, who is reportedly the highest paid presenter on BBC, was suspended from his show for breaking BBC's impartiality rules, with the BBC apparently discussing this decision with him and finding that his comparison to Nazi Germany was unacceptable, and also saying that he would be benched until all parties could figure out how he can express his views on social media while remaining in line with the broadcaster's impartiality rules. With all of that leading to BBC facing tons and tons of backlash for this decision. You had athletes and BBC presenters supporting Lineker by refusing to appear on air, accusing BBC of having a political bias and suppressing free speech, with this even forcing BBC Sport to have to scrap a bunch of its weekend programming. We also saw Greg Dyke, a media executive and the former general director of BBC condemning the move, saying the BBC has undermined its own credibility by doing this because it looks like, the perception out there, that the BBC has bowed to government pressure, saying the impartiality policy is really only meant to apply to news presenters, not entertainment or sports personalities. With all of that, bring us to the big update. Yesterday, BBC lifting Lineker's suspension. Director General Tim Davies saying that he is a valued part of the BBC and he looks forward to him presenting our coverage this coming weekend. The BBC will also reportedly be launching a review into its social media guidelines, specifically as they apply to staffers outside of news and current affairs. And for his part, Lineker said he's happy to have navigated through this, thanking all his colleagues for their support, but also added, however difficult the last few days have been, it simply doesn't compare to having to flee your home from persecution or war to seek refuge in a land far away. It's heartwarming to have seen the empathy towards their plight from so many of you. And then later thanking Director General Tim Davey and noting he has an almost impossible job of keeping everybody happy. And so in response to all this, there are plenty of people that are happy that Lineker is back on the air, but as the New York Times notes, this debate has been polarizing for people and conservatives think the BBC capitulate to him over his star power. And then, the bottom G just took a big L. Or, for those of you that are not chronically online, that translates to Andrew Tate just faced another loss in his legal battle. Because today we saw a Romanian court deny his request to be released on bail. And this, as a quick reminder, Tate, his brother, and two other female suspects have been in detention since December as authorities investigate them over human trafficking, rape, and organized crime allegations. With Tate also repeatedly trying to appeal his arrest, but the court has upheld it and continually extended it, with him currently slated to be detained until at least March 29th. Also notably, ahead of his court hearing today is Twitter account sent out more of the kind of weird cryptic tweets that it's been sharing, saying if you want a life people aspire for, you need to be prepared to defend it. Or kind of just a, a bunch of sayings that are the, the bro versions of live, laugh, love, and be yourself, everyone's taken. But anyways, the, the court reportedly said that the request to have his custody replaced with restricted release on bail was inadmissible in principle. And as expected, Tate wasn't happy with us, with a spokesperson telling the Daily Mail, we are disappointed in this outcome as we had high hopes to see Andrew reunited with his family. His legal team will be appealing this decision within the 48-hour time frame. And at the very least, there should be a 
sprinkling of Tate news this week, because in addition to that 48-hour appeal, the court will rule on a similar request for his brother tomorrow. And then, the family of a former student at Heartland Middle School in Oklahoma is suing the district because they say that the principal strip-searched her, and specifically accusing them of intentional infliction of emotional distress, negligence, sexual assault, and violating the Fourth Amendment. So let's talk details. Back in May of 2021, the student was pulled into a room with the principal, another student, and the school resource officer. This because the principal suspected that she was carrying a vape, which is when the principal allegedly told the student to lift her shirt, exposing her stomach and the top of her boxers underneath her pants, with the principal then allegedly asking what type of underwear the student was wearing and telling her to lift her shirt and expose her bra. And according to the lawsuit, no vape was found. With the suit going on to say that the principal should have known that making the student expose her abdomen and undergarments amounted to a strip search. And notably, by Oklahoma law and the school's district's policy, staff can search students under reasonable suspicion, but they're not allowed to strip search with a school policy reading, in no event shall a strip search of a student be allowed. No student's clothing except cold weather outerwear shall be removed prior to or during the conduct of any warrantless search. And they didn't have a warrant, so the family is now suing the school and looking for a minimum of $25,000 in damages. But the family's attorney also saying the student had already been searched with a metal detector wand and presented no threat, noting they did all of this without contacting anybody's parents. And going on to say, our goal is for people to understand that your rights don't end at the door to a school. But in the meantime, we'll have to wait to see what happens. And as far as the girl, her parents removed her from the district and she's enrolled in an online program as they look to a new school district. And then, and a big update to the Silicon Valley bank collapse, of course, the government had to step in, with regulators announcing that all the depositors for this now-failed bank would have access to their funds. Right, not only to keep those people whole, but also there was a general concern that this was going to cause more bank runs. You know, fear is contagious, and one of the ways we saw that happen yesterday were bank stocks getting pummeled. Not all. Right, the Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase's of the world really didn't take that big of a hit. But holy hell, First Republic Bank and Western Alliance Bank took a beating. But the news today, much, much brighter. And this is possibly connected to the Fed's bank term funding program, which is absolutely huge for these banks if they need to become liquid because people are pulling out money. Because like we talked about, the whole banking industry kind of just relies on trust that it works. And that trust seems to be there, at least for some, because First Republic and Western Alliance, holy hell, what a rebound. Congrats to whoever the fuck grabbed that falling knife in the past 24 hours, with the stocks as a recording jumping 57 and 45%. But the situation is not all rainbows and sunshine. Because one, we do need to see how things play out. Just because we see something in the short term doesn't mean long-term success. And two, there's a chance there may be some repercussions for the execs at SVB, as there are now reports that the DOJ is going to investigate them and some of their shady actions prior to the bank's collapse. But even with that, there are still concerns from people that it won't be enough to disincentivize bad banking behaviors because of how the government stepped in here. And part of the reason FDIC insurance is $250,000 is because the big people who have the big money, they need to understand that there's a risk where they put their money. Whereas those who have under $250,000 should feel safe, like, oh, okay, I should be covered. I'm small, I'm small bananas. Is that a phrase? I don't know. But with the government making massive public exceptions here, right, does that train banks to go, oh, we can really fucking do whatever. Every bank, no matter the size, as long as you're kind of connected to a certain degree, too big to fail. But as far as what happens next, we're going to have to wait to see, he said in a clip that will be used in a future documentary to talk about the future crash. Because if our systems have shown us anything, it's not a matter of if it will fail. It's just when and uh, how we try to put the pieces back together. And then it turns out that Rite Aid is a fantastic place to get drugs you should not be allowed to get. Or at least that's what the Department of Justice is alleging in their new lawsuit against Rite Aid. Claiming that between 2014 and 2019, Rite Aid violated the Controlled Substances Act and knowingly filled unlawful prescriptions for controlled substances. Are we talking about prescriptions that lacked good paper trails, were obviously fake, or were clearly not for a legitimate medical purpose? And an associate attorney general adding that Rite Aid filled hundreds of thousands of prescriptions that did not meet legal requirements 
requirements. And according to our complaint, Rite Aid pharmacists repeatedly filled prescriptions for controlled substances with obvious red flags, and Rite Aid intentionally deleted internal notes about suspicious prescribers, and adding that this opened the floodgates for opioids and other controlled substances. Also looking into what they called the obvious red flags, wow, they reportedly ignored notes on accounts that said things like cash-only pill mill. So at the very least, you know, some people working there had an idea that things were fishy with some customers. Rite Aid's also accused of submitting false prescription claims to healthcare programs. These are massive allegations because this is one of the nation's largest pharmacy chains. And this, I mean, during a time where over half a million Americans have died during the opioid crisis. But like with so many stories like this, who's actually gonna be held accountable? Or the company Rite Aid isn't a person that they can't go to prison. So based off of how things like this often play out, what, worst case scenario, Rite Aid has to pay a yet unknown amount in fines? Ooh, so scary, that'll teach them. And then Uber and Lyft just got massive wins. And this because a California appeals court ruled that Proposition 22, which allowed companies like Uber and Lyft to label their drivers independent contractors rather than employees, can remain a law. An absolutely massive win for the companies considering last year a California Superior Court judge said it's unenforceable. But of course, this isn't the end of the road, with opponents of the proposition saying they're going to take it to the state Supreme Court. Chick-fil-A is looking to bring their off-on-Sunday chicken over to Asia and Europe, with it being reported that Chick-fil-A, which is the third largest fast food chain in America, has a $1 billion international expansion plan. Pharmaceutical giant Pfizer is buying Segan for $43 billion, and it's all about cancer. And this, because as the AP reports, while cancer treatments brought in $12 billion in revenue for Pfizer last year, they've only marketed a couple first-generation ADC treatments, which are treatments that, unlike chemotherapy, target and kill cancerous cells while leaving good cells alive. But Segan has four treatments on the market already, and it also has a pipeline of drugs under development that includes potential treatments for a form of lung cancer and advanced breast cancer. And it appears Pfizer was able to easily do this because they're absolutely flush with cash right now, bringing in $100 billion last year in large part due to the COVID-19 vaccine and treatments like Paxlovid. We've got good news for home buyers. Could be better, but it's good. The average 30-year mortgage has dropped from 7.5% to around 6.57% now. Still miles away from pandemic mortgage rates, but hey, better's better. And then selfishly, the final bit of business news is that I'm clearing out some stock. If you go to beautifulbastard.com from now to the end of Friday, I'm doing a good vibes 50% off sale. This extends to the posters I just put back up after several months, as well as our holographic water bottles and journals. Because honestly, bitch, you need to hydrate and you need to write out your feelings and or plans. And whether you buy those things from me or somewhere else, I stand by that. Take time out of your day to drink some water and write some shit down. It's a game changer, trust me. Yeah, 50% off select items over at beautifulbastard.com. And then, it can be hard keeping up with working out consistently and exercising on your own has its own host of challenges. Which is why I wanna thank the fantastic sponsor of today's show, Copilot. Copilot is the doable way to start and stick with your fitness goals. Between my coach and the app, it's helping me stay consistent and work harder. I've personally been working with my coach Devin since back in December and I'm absolutely noticing my endurance is way better, I'm feeling stronger. And for me, it's that Copilot difference. Each day is different and I appreciate it's about what I can do today type of workouts. And I love having the flexibility. Like I hurt my shoulder about three, four weeks ago in an unrelated thing. And Devin changed up my program so I can heal, but also at the same time, keep working on myself. But remember, this isn't just helping me. Over 75% of Copilot users are still working out after 100 days. That's nine times more successful than average. And as far as how it works, you, you start off with an onboarding call, getting connected to a coach. You go over where you're at or not at with your fitness, what you're looking for, goals, etc. And then boom, they make customized workouts for you depending on your needs and your flexibility. Well, I started on this journey by myself, it's so amazing having a pro just push me to my potential and I don't even have to leave my house. So if you wanna join me on a fitness journey of your own, just click that link in the description box to get 14 days free with your own expert fitness and health coach. And then- No more drilling on federal lands, period. 
Period, period, period. One debt to society later. The Biden administration has officially approved a controversial oil drilling project in Alaska known as Willow. The climate hawk himself is defying the environmental activists who helped get him elected. With a massive Willow oil project owned by ConocoPhillips given the green light yesterday. It's expected to produce 180,000 barrels of oil per day at its peak, which also would result in 263 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions over three decades. Which to give some context, that's roughly equivalent to 1.7 million cars, though it's still a tiny fraction of total U.S. emissions. And all this comes despite a desperate 11th hour push by green groups to protest the plan with a viral Stop Willow hashtag on TikTok and over a million letters sent to the White House. With them pointing out that the International Energy Agency says that new investments in oil and gas drilling must be halted now if we want to reach net zero emissions by 2050. We saw a climate scientist adding, at some point we have to leave oil and gas and coal in the ground. And for me, that some point is now. But others argue that instead of attacking supply, policymakers should focus on reducing demand. Saying if domestic projects like Willow are just stopped, then oil refiners will simply look overseas for their crew. And as far as that goes, I mean, we've barely put a dent in demand, with electric vehicles expected to displace less than 3% of global oil consumption by 2030. So you've also got some Alaskans supporting Willow because they say, look, we need these jobs, thousands of which will be created as well as the billions of dollars in revenue. Or because oil is the lifeblood of Alaska's economy and with production down since the 1980s, state lawmakers from both parties have backed the project. Though as far as the indigenous population, they are split, with some favoring the economic benefits and others fearing that ecological damage will destroy their way of life. And they are pointing to coastal erosion, threatening their villages as well as thinning sea ice, melting permafrost, and wildfires. Plus, I mean, you got the deaths of countless birds, fish, and other animals that provide nutrition to many rural communities. You have the Biden administration finding itself stuck between the short-term economic needs of Americans and the long-term climate crisis threatening the earth, with Biden initially landing on one side of that dilemma, suspending all new oil and gas leases at the start of his term. But last year, he went never mind regarding that policy in exchange for Joe Manchin's support on a climate bill. And so now, he plans to sell more than 73 million acres of oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico this month, as well as 350,000 acres of onshore leases in Wyoming, New Mexico, Montana, and other states in May and June. Though as a concession to activists, he paired the approval of Willow with a policy making the entire U.S. Arctic Ocean off-limits to future leasing. Though that has been met with its fair share of eye rolls, since really there hasn't been a massive demand for that specific area. And then, South Carolina pro-birthers are so pro-birth, they're pro-death. With South Carolina House Republicans pushing forth some legislation that they call the South Carolina Prenatal Equal Protection Act of 2023. What it would do is change the legal definition of person under state law to include a fertilized egg at the point of conception. So as a result, the fertilized egg would get equal protection under the state's homicide laws, so getting an abortion would be considered the same as committing a homicide, which key thing in South Carolina is punishable by the death penalty. Now, the proposal does make the small exception for when a person gets an abortion because they are at risk of imminent death or great bodily injury. And the Republican who introduced the bill, State Representative Rob Harris, told reporters there's also a duress defense for women who are pressured or threatened to have an abortion. But also, very notably, that's it. The bill does not have any exceptions for things like rape or incest. And understand, this is not a proposal from a lone extremist Republican. Reportedly, this bill has earned 21 co-sponsors, though two of those have since asked for their names to be removed from the bill. And very important, this is not the first time legislation like this has been proposed. Similar bills have also been introduced in Arkansas, Texas, and Kentucky, with all of those states having the death penalty and all of those bills establishing that life begins at conception, and specifically reference homicide charges for abortion. Under his eye, moving on. And then, when you really think about it, the January 6th insurrection was actually Mike Pence's fault, right? He was the one who refused to overturn the results of the election. So that is an absolutely insane argument, which is why it makes sense that that's what Trump is literally arguing right now. Right, According to the Washington Post, while speaking to reporters on his plane yesterday, Trump said that the violence at the Capitol would not have happened if Pence had just listened to him and rejected the Electoral College votes in Congress. Right, Because it definitely wasn't Trump's fault. He didn't spend months lying and inciting his supporters to violence. Right, He didn't rally a mob of people, some of whom were carrying guns and weapons around D.C. Things just wouldn't have been bad if it hadn't been for Pence. Why didn't he just undermine democracy like a good boy? And Trump really leveling up his gaslighting by 
by saying, had he sent the votes back to the legislatures, they wouldn't have had a problem with January 6th. So in many ways, you can blame him for January 6th. Had he sent them back to Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, the states, I believe, number one, you would have had a different outcome. But I also believe you wouldn't have had January 6th, as we call it. Man, sometimes I can't tell if he believes the bullshit or he, like, he knows that it's all lies. But also, as far as why he was even talking about this, he made those comments in response to what honestly is the strongest rebuke Pence has ever made of his former running mate. Saying during an event over the weekend, President Trump was wrong. I had no right to overturn the election, and his reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day. And I know that history will hold Donald Trump accountable. But also, I, I gotta say, I think this highlights the stranglehold that Trump has on the conservative base right now. It's taken Pence so long to be like, it's not cool that you tried to get people to kill me. That's not super dope fresh, Donald. Also, again, this is not a power that the vice president even has. He does not have the power to single-handedly reject electoral votes and send them back to state legislatures. Pence, at the very least, has repeated that time and time again since January 6th. It's also something that's been widely backed by legal experts, and in December, Congress passed a bipartisan bill to clarify that the vice president does not have the authority to overturn the results of an election. Because a very notable thing here, that legislation literally did not change anything about the existing law. It just made it even more clear. Though the counterpoint to that to anyone who has looked at most of history, people who want to undo democracy don't follow every single rule. Right, you know how they say possession is nine-tenths of the law? Yeah, it translates here. If you get enough people to disregard the rules and force through some change, shit just happens. Which is why it's important to remember that Donald Trump is a very real threat. Any of this reporting about how the GOP is just gonna treat him like a sideshow, he shouldn't be taken seriously, come, really? You learned 0.0 things from the 2016 election cycle? You're just gonna disregard things like an Emerson poll last month finding that 72% of Republicans with a high school degree or less education support him? But he's still generally and strongly leading other potential rivals in the race like Ron DeSantis. Santos. Which, I mean, by the way, if they actually want to have someone that's not Trump, they're going to need to quickly get behind one person rather than a whole field of people. Because in any sort of Republican primary situation, you should expect a lockdown Trump vote and something to be split among everyone else. And then, America's number one, baby! I used to say shit like that all the time when I was growing up. And then you realize, like, oh, well, not, we're not number one in everything, or a lot. Uh, okay, we're number one in things like school shootings. And as it turns out, with the news we're seeing today, we also like to export our murder. With new numbers showing the United States of America absolutely controls global arms exports. And like, it's not even close. Number one and number two have been the United States and Russia. And in 2013 to 2017, the United States did 33% of global arms exports, Russia at 22%. But like Dominic Toretto, we put that bitch in another gear between 2018 and 2022, jumping to 40% of global arms exports. And Russia actually got knocked back to 16%. So I will say, it'll be interesting to see how these numbers change over the next few years, considering the war in Ukraine right now, where there's this constant flow of arms to the country and it's changing the international landscape as far as weapons. As far as Russia, those numbers are probably going to drop since instead of exporting, they're using. And then, more than five months since the killing of Masa Amini said Iran ablaze, those fires are finally being extinguished. Because with the protests largely going quiet in recent weeks, the government's apparently comfortable enough to release people from prison. With the judiciary chief announcing that 82,000 people have been pardoned so far, including 22,000 who were arrested during the demonstrations. Though he didn't specify when the pardons occurred, so it's not clear whether these include the tens of thousands of people and protesters state media said were pardoned back in February. But he did know that anyone who committed what they said was theft or violent crimes were not pardoned, suggesting that the total number of arrested could be much larger. And that's notable because this conservative number is already above the 19,700 people human rights activists previously estimated, which means if the pattern holds, the current estimate of 530 deaths could be low as well since the government hasn't released fatality numbers in months. And this is not a single state official has been held accountable for the brutal repression of protesters. But that is where today's show ends. Thank you for being a part of another one of my daily dives into the news. Also, if you made it to this point, let me know your thoughts on the uh, kind of the same but slightly different format of the show. I'm trying to make it 
it your one-stop shop for news rather than just a few stories. You seem to love it yesterday, but I'm a, an ask twice kind of guy. With that said, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow.